Welcome to All Points In Between, the podcast that laughs in the face of regular release schedules. I'm coming to you today from a car park in Germany. I've started driving around in the van again and I haven't really had time to get a hold of any interviewees or guests or anything like that. So instead, I'm going to read something that I originally wrote a couple of years ago when I travelled to Albania, covering the capital city, Tirana. I'm heading back down there a little later this autumn, and it'll be quite interesting to see how it's changed since I wrote this article. So, that's pretty much what we're doing today. If you want to stick around, stick around. If you don't... There's loads of other episodes. You can find them all at Twitter, um, at allpointscast, or you can just email us to get in touch if you want to be a guest or do anything like that at allpointspod at gmail.com. So with that, these were my thoughts of Tirana in 2020. The campsite was located at the Nord Park Hotel. A relatively high-class establishment, about a mile north of Tirana Airport. Included in my 19 euro pitch fee was the use of a large swimming pool, which I would definitely be taking advantage of soon. And, importantly, a laundry service, along with real toilets and showers. My choice of accommodation was further vindicated by the fact that Albanian top flight side FK Lassie, were using this as the base for their training camp in the run-up to a Europa League game. That morning, I had managed to grab one of the coaches to find out whether the fans were going to be allowed to games in Albania. With it being 2020 and Covid period, unfortunately they weren't. So the pulse-pounding action of Albanian domestic football was going to have to wait for another day. Whilst dropping off almost a month's worth of filthy clothes at reception, I asked about buses to the capital. The travel guide suggested that driving in Tirana should be avoided, and so I decided that Abby was going to have to sit this one out. Buses pass hotel around once an hour. However, there wasn't really much of a schedule to speak of, so it was suggested that I just wait at the roadside around 20 minutes prior to the planned arrival. The bus run into the capital, like those serving much of the country, uh, not really managed by a central transport authority. The service was made up of small private companies that have a handful of minibuses and often run between the destination and the town where the driver lives. I doubt I'd have noticed the bus passing if it hadn't been for a young woman at the bus stop who spoke enough English to help me out. As it arrived, it was clear that there wouldn't be much social distancing happening on this journey. The vehicle had seating for 18. However, there were never fewer than 25 passengers during our ride into the city. There was a single seat available, which I offered to my travelling companion. Then I took my place squished in back row between a regularly rotating selection of elderly men. Having not been to the laundrette in many weeks, I think these poor souls who were forced to sit next to me certainly got the worst end of the encounter.
the minibus services didn't take people directly into the city centre. They instead deposited passengers into a large car park about a mile and a half out. The woman I had travelled with had pointed me in the direction of the bus that I'd need to continue if I wanted to travel into the city, before heading off into her job in the nearby shopping centre. The buses in the city itself were much like what you'd expect to see in any other European capital. Indeed, the safety notices inside my one suggested it had started its life in Germany at some point. It's fairly common for vehicles from the EU to wind up in Albania. Incidents that justify an insurance write-off in some countries in Western Europe are considered minor repairs in the country. It's possible to turn a healthy profit shipping written off vehicles over to Albania. This partly explains the roaring trade in auto repair shops and also the large number of locals cruising around in very new looking BMWs and Land Rovers. I rode the bus for a few hundred metres, however the traffic was moving at a crawl through roadworks. Eventually I rang the bell to get off and decided that I would probably go quicker and see more of the city on foot. As should be predictable to everybody who has listened to this show in the past, when I disembarked I quickly saw the source of the delay. There was a set of temporary traffic lights about 20 metres up the road. Upon reaching these, the bus that I'd been riding sailed past into the city without me. It was okay though. The sun was shining, I was in a new city, I'd know where I need to rush to. I thought it'd be a good opportunity to see a little bit more of what Tirana had to offer outside of its centre. When writing about the Australian capital, Canberra, Bill Bryson, who I also refer to a lot because he's awesome, said that Canberra was like a city hiding inside a park. I believe something similar could be said of Tirana if you replace the word park with building site. For a mile and a half, I picked my way along pavements that had been dug up at some point in the past, but not yet relayed, and roundabouts where cars were jostling for space with JCBs. The traffic across the city felt like witnessing the roundabout at the Arc de Triomphe, if all the drivers were on crack. I was immediately glad that I had decided to leave Abby back at the campsite. Just watching the chaos unfold as I made my way through the city was enough to have my heart lodged firmly in my mouth. In hindsight, I've been to cities like Nuadibu and Mauritania where red lights and traffic rules are completely advisory as opposed to occasionally advisory like they were in Tirana. So the situation there probably isn't as bad as I was making out when I wrote this at the time. All around my walk, I could see new blocks of flats springing up. It's clear that this city has ambitions to be seen as a larger European capital. Before even reaching the centre, I have made a big mental note to come back here in around 10 years to see how progress is made. Turns out it's going to be about three. The chaotic building sites and endless repair shops 
began to thin out and be replaced by more modern, planned architecture as I approached Scandbeg Square, the vast paved expanse that marks the centre of Tirana. The square in its current form came into beginning during the communist era. However, there were other public forums in the space going back to the Ottoman period. To the south stands a large monument to the national hero, Gieri Castriotti Scandibu, and that is the first time that I have had to pronounce that. I got it correct immediately. The rest of the square is ringed with the kind of large concrete buildings that clearly identify you as being somewhere in post-communist Europe, but don't really give much impression of your location further than that. Upon entering the square, I found myself opposite the vast edifice of the National Museum. It's a large cream-coloured building with a building-length mosaic featuring heroic and admittedly heavily armed Albanians from various periods of history marching under a large red flag. As I mentioned in the past, I do like a bit of socialist realism art. At this point in the morning, the weather seemed too nice to be in the museum, so I made note to swing back round this way a little bit later when the afternoon heat became too much. First I spent some time taking in the square, which dwarfed the small number of visitors who were there. Skanderbeg comes in at roughly three and a half times the size of Trafalgar Square, which admittedly doesn't make it one of the true giants of the square world, but when there's only a handful of people in space, it feels much bigger. It was truly a square with Covid social distancing made in mind. Just beyond the square stands the main Orthodox Cathedral and the Central Mosque. Both buildings sit impressively against the city skyline. The cathedral was open to visitors, however a lot of the building was fenced off when services aren't taking place. I spent the usual amount of time a tourist spends in the interior of a cathedral, e.g. just about long enough to take a handful of photos, make a suitably impressed noise whilst exhaling. Beneath the large central dome, a golden halo Jesus looked on with a somewhat disproving look. In his left hand was a Bible, but his right hand was making an okay sign. I satisfied myself that this Jesus simply has a grumpy resting face. As a man who also possesses such a face, I don't feel able to judge somebody else about it. The walk between the central cathedral and the main mosque is along a tree-lined boulevard that runs to the south of Skanderbeg Square. I was pleased for the shade and also to be away from the near constant building work in the rest of the city. The pedestrianised road is lined with cafes before the right-hand side is eventually overtaken by one of the remaining walls of the Tirana Castle. Along the centre of the square, there were a large number of stands for what looked like an open-air university fair. I took a seat outside one of the cafes and passed a pleasant half-hour watching impossibly beautiful Albanian promo girls 
extol benefits of whichever university they've been hired for promoting to the passing teams. The street and part of the castle which have been conversed into a shopping precinct show the ambition that Tirana has for itself. Looking at the front of these, the boulevard looked every bit the 21st century capital city. Upon finishing my coffee, I took a detour down a side alley next to the castle. This showed the frontage to be all that there currently is. The frontage. A few metres off from the shades of the trees and the coffee shops, I found myself in a yard with several partially demolished staircases leading to nowhere and crumbling facades exposing the brickwork beneath. It felt like one moment being in a world of sophistication and intrigue, a bit like when James Bond is seducing his next double agent on the Champs-Élysées, and then suddenly walking around the corner and finding out that you're actually on a film set on the outskirts of Watford. Having exhausted the entertainment potential of this small yard, I walked back round to the bit that I was meant to see, and continued on to the mosque. While sitting in the parkland that houses the new central mosque, I took a bit of time to have a flick through my guidebook to the city. I was informed that currently the principal mosque in the city has capacity for fewer than 100 worshippers, which in a Muslim-majority country in its capital is somewhat unusual. And as such, Skanderbeg Square has been used for religious celebrations since the fall of communism. Shortly after the democratic revolution, it was decided that the capital required a larger building to stand alongside its existing Catholic and Orthodox cathedrals and serve the majority Muslim population in the city. The building that towered before me is expected to start accommodating worshippers within a year of my visit, which again was 2020. Albania is the only Muslim-majority country in what would traditionally be considered Europe, depending on your opinion as to whether Kosovo is a country or not. Depends on how many Serbians are listening, I suppose. But a decade of fascist occupation, followed by nearly half a century under the rigidly anti-religious boot of Hoxha, has left the country largely secular. Much of the population identifies as Muslim due to their family history, but most don't seem to practice the faith any more than your typical English person who puts C of E as their religion on their census form. The attitude towards religion reminds me a bit of Turkey when I visited there in my childhood. At the time, the country did have a fairly established secular tradition, which my impression from reading is that it's been a bit worn away by the current regime. As a note, that is the direction that I'm heading this winter, so we'll have to see how my memories and my reading match up to the reality. Several weeks prior to arriving in Tirana, the Turkish government had followed through with its promise to re-establish the Hagia Sophia, one of the most visited museums in the world, as a mosque. That particular building has had multiple roles for multiple faiths, and indeed none, in its lifetime. 
While it has been confirmed that the building will remain open to tourists, its redesignation as being specifically for a certain segment of society is probably going to change the way that people experience the space. Much of the funding for the construction of the Tirana Mosque was provided by the Turkish government. My experience of Albania is that it doesn't currently appear to be at the risk of the fate that seems to be befalling Turkey right now. Certainly the overriding desire between the government and the current elites in the country is to see Albania join the EU as soon as possible. I doubt there's anywhere else I stayed on the trip back in 2020 where I saw more EU flags flying. How deep this sentiment runs in the country is difficult to say. The day after my trip to Tirana, I spent several hours speaking to a young man by the pool who complained uninterrupted for around 30 minutes about the European Union and very much admired the UK for telling them where they could stick their single market. The examples of Poland and Hungary perhaps also show that EU membership isn't really a vaccine to growing religious nationalism and right extremism, as much as it markets itself as being so. The mosque itself is situated in a small park, not far from the parliament. The ongoing construction at the time meant that I couldn't go inside, but it was impressive to see from the park. Now it's officially open in 2023, it is the largest mosque in the Balkans. It has space inside for 4,500 worshippers. Even in 2020, it already made for an imposing sight. Its minarets and dome rising above the park. It had more than a slight resemblance to its benefactors, Hagia Sophia, but it will make an impressive addition to the city's heritage. Having walked around the construction site fencing and found a very few good spots to take some photos, I decided to continue south to the slightly more secular site on the Tirana to-do list. I went to go see the Pyramid of Tirana, formerly known as the Enverhoxa Museum. Whereas the cathedrals and the mosques are elegant and are designed to fit in with the surroundings, this brutalist eyesore squats just south of the Lana River from the political quarter, looking for all the world like a Teletubby hill designed by Daleks. The building opened three years after Hox's death and was designed by his architect daughter. Although in this context the term architect seems to have been used in the way that daughters of other rich and powerful men sometimes refer to themselves as actresses or singers. Originally planned as a museum to the legacy of the recently departed leader, an ongoing misconception is that the building did contain the preserved body of Hoxha in the style of Lenin in Red Square. However, this never happened and it was never the intended purpose of the structure. The man himself was originally interned in a prime spot in the Martyrs Cemetery overlooking the capital. After the fall of the regime, his body was moved to a grave in a Tirana public cemetery. While I didn't visit the cemetery myself, 
I was able to find articles by numerous tankies who've been there. The photos they post show a grave that looks modest but well maintained. It was from one of those articles that I found out Hox's original, slightly more ostentatious headstone was repurposed as a memorial to British troops and now stands near Tirana University. In the early 90s, the pyramid was used for several purposes. It was used as a conference venue, a media centre. It was also a NATO base during the Kosovo War at the end of the 90s. On the day I visited, the site was fairly quiet, the squat concrete sculpture now liberally daubed with nearly 30 years of graffiti. And I'm a big fan of using graffiti to brighten up grim-looking structures. My visit to Metalcova in Ljubljana was a great example of a community taking over an abandoned concrete block and making something aesthetically pleasing out of it that serves locals. In this case, however, the bright, bubble-lettered throw-ups just made the whole site feel a little neglected and unloved. You can walk up the gently sloping sides of the structure, but I wasn't really in any particular mood to do that. So I just watched as some studenty looking types pick their way across its surface. The pyramid remains a subject of debate in the city, with the majority of residents wanting it to be kept. Its most likely future purpose will be as a technology hub for startup companies, a silicon pimple you might say. However, there is a minority opinion that the building should be torn down and replaced with a purpose-built structure such as either a new parliament building or a theatre. I hope the decision will be made by the people of the city and they won't end up being influenced by any vested development interests. If it is the case that it's decided that the pyramid strays, then that's great, and I hope they get many more years of productive use out of it. But personally, I'd vote to dynamite the whole thing tomorrow. I should note, since I wrote this about three years ago, I've kind of come around on the pyramid. It is an interesting piece of history. Probably not the sort of thing you should be getting rid of, just because it tell story. Maybe I'll get rid of the dynamite bit before I put this out. As I returned to the main square, I passed the Ministry of Internal Affairs and found myself stood in front of a large dome structure. It looked like the kind of place where you'd expect to find a young Luke Skywalker while he was waiting for the events of New Hope to start. It was, of course, a bomb shelter. It's one of around 100,000 that Hoxerod built during the period of his regime. The bunker in front of this ministry was one of the larger ones, and it was made to house various instruments of government in the case of invasion. Never ended up getting used during the communist era. However, the government did use it when they feared Serbian airstrikes after leasing the local airport to the US military during the Kosovo War. These days, most of those hundreds of thousands of bunkers lie empty, aside from beer cans and the occasional used condom. The Lonely Planet founder, Tony Wheeler, wrote that Albanian virginity is lost in a hoxer bunker, 
as often as American virginity was once lost in the backseat of cars. However, this bunker in the centre of Tirana has been transformed into one of two bunker museums in the city, called Bunkart. The labyrinth of tunnels and rooms beneath the Internal Affairs Ministry now contains an exhibition on law enforcement and state repression, with large chunks of it devoted to the way the post-war communist government treated its citizens. Exhibitions of this sort can be found in many countries that have merged from dictatorships. The entrance is under one of the distinctive domes that could be found across the country. Looking up into the roof, you're met by a photo montage of Albanians murdered by their regime, arranged around a small window in the centre which allows a ray of sunlight into the darkness. The day I visited, the museum was almost empty, so I took the common sense approach to wear my mask and spent an interesting few hours out of the heat of the day winding through the various exhibits. Across Albania, I saw many memorials to the victims of the Hoxha regime and also read a bit about some of the more off-the-wall decisions that he made while he was in charge. During the communist era, most Western entertainment was banned. However, as any pub quizzer will tell you, the notable exception to this was Benny Hill. It's never been adequately explained why, out of everything that the decadent West did, the one thing Hoxer deemed acceptable for the Albanian workers' paradise was the slapstick comedy of Benny Hill. Equally strange policies include the decision to mandate all foreigners entering the country to have their hair cut when they arrived at the border, or, of course, that time that he approved the construction of a giant pyramid shortly before his death. Or indeed, the 100,000 bunkers that he built at a time when nobody in the outside world gave a two hoots about invading Albania. The obvious answer to these policies to many people is to resort to the idea that Hoxha was some kind of fucking fruit loop. A man who shouldn't have been trusted with a tin opener, let alone an entire country. But I suspect that there might be a bit more of a nuanced answer. While Hoxer was certainly on the more extreme end in terms of dictatorial whimsy, it's certainly not unusual for leaders in positions of absolute power to make decisions that range from being counterproductive to just downright bizarre. In relationships, the concept of gaslighting is the practice of one partner emotionally manipulating another partner against that individual's interests. Often this involves one individual taking control of the relationship through the use of seemingly irrational behaviour in order to keep the other partner on their toes at all times. When this is done really well, it's possible for the other partner to start feeling like it's them who's in fact crazy, and the only thing keeping the chaos at bay is the relationship itself. I suspect that the whimsical and irrational policies are less a sign of a dictator who's just a plain old lunatic, so much as it is the case of an individual who's gained so much power that they're actually able to just gaslight an entire country. Towards the end of the museum, there was a corridor dedicated to arts inspired by the content of the rest of the museum. 
Upon entering one of the rooms in this section, I was met by a gruesome figure. A man made of twisted metal and barbed wire, even stooping his head almost touched the ceiling. At the centre of his torso, there was a heart enclosed in a cage, and in his hands, implements that looked like they'd make a malcontent think twice about saying anything contentious to this fellow. The sculpture, called The Monster of Dictatorship, was produced by an artist called Rajmonda Sayi Avignon, who grew up under the regime. Being an individual who spends an unhealthy amount of time reading about the great monster history and parallels in what's happening in the world today, I found the explanation of the piece that Avignon gave really fascinating. Quote, I collected these pieces belonging to the past and put them together in order to transmit feelings, emotions, fears, thoughts, and also letting you know that in fact, we create the monsters, applaud them, follow them, put them on a pedestal, and these monsters then feel so powerful that they don't want to leave us anymore. They try to get us twisted in their abyss whirlpool. The unspoken fear of the monsters amplifies. They build walls, prisons, twisted strategies, and they become afraid of free speech thoughts and diversity. If one day you decide to fight the monsters, be aware that while fighting the monsters, do not forget what you strive for. Always watch out for the monster inside you. This piece interested me partly because of the sometimes schizophrenic attitude I'd seen in much of the Balkans towards those who stood up to fight the fascist occupation during the Second World War. The ordinary people who risked everything to create the most effective resistance movement in Europe, they were indeed brave and hard as nails. And they are people who very much deserve to be honoured. However, it can never be completely untangled that these movements pave the way for the repression that was to come later. In countries that didn't have a long history of democracy, it was probably always likely that freedom that came through the barrel of a gun wasn't going to remain free for very long. Particularly with all those Cold War machinations that were swirling around this part of the world after 1945. I emerged back into the sunlight in a somewhat thoughtful mood and made my way across the square to the National Museum. And it's at this point that I'll leave it because next time I'm going to come back and give a very cat-handed history of Albania along with Matt, who is a fellow history nerd. If you want to get in touch, then you can do on Twitter at allpointscast or you can email me at allpointspod at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, or you want to share a story, or just generally hurl abuse because it's the internet, then get in touch with me there. Look forward to speaking to you again next week. Bye!